1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jolin, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm here with Dr. Roberto Gonzalez to discuss his new book, War Virtually The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future, published by University of California Press in April, 2022. The book presents a critical look at how the US military is weaponizing technology and data for new kinds of warfare and why we must resist. Dr. Gonzalez is professor and chair of the San Jose State University Anthropology Department. He has authored four books, including Connected, how a Mexican village built its own cell phone network and militarizing culture essays on the warfare state. Thank you so much, uh, Roberto, for joining me to discuss your book. It was a pleasure to read.
0: Thank you for the introduction and for the invitation to be here with you today.
1: Now, normally at the beginning of an episode, I might ask you to tell us a bit about your background, but in fact, you already introduced yourself to our NBN listeners when you were on the podcast back in October of 2021 to discuss your book, Connected. Can you remind us briefly where your educational journey has taken you and what links might exist between your Connected book project and your research for War Virtually?
0: Sure. Um, I'd be glad to do that. I. Began my college career, um, not even knowing what anthropology was. Um, I started out um, as a mechanical engineering major. Um, As a high school student, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And um, mechanical engineering sounded as good as any other major. And I heard it was a good career path. Um, And I studied that for four years. Um, and even worked as a student engineer in a couple of places, including a General Motors assembly plant, of all things. Um, And then my senior year, uh, my fifth year, I should say, um, I took a general ed course that was the Introduction to Cultural Anthropology course um, at the University of Texas at Austin. And I was blown away. My mind was, (laughs) my world was turned upside down, as they say. And um, I very quickly investigated how long it would take me to get a degree in anthropology and I found out I could probably do it in about three semesters Um, and I just took the plunge uh, much to my parents dismay, Um, but I have no regrets at all about doing it. Um, I applied to PhD programs um, during my uh, second to last semester and uh, surprisingly got accepted uh, at a number of places, including UC Berkeley. So um, I was a fairly late late arrival to the field of anthropology, um, but I discovered uh, very quickly that it was a much better fit uh, for who I am uh, as a a scholar and as a writer, uh, and gave me a kind of insight into um, the way that humans behave the way they do. now, I've, after being an anthropologist now for 25 years, um, I've had time to reflect on my different research topics and research interests. And I would say that the connecting thread is that there is some element of uh, looking at science and technology within a cultural framework that links all of my work from beginning to end. Um, and so, just to give an example, my doctoral dissertation was a project called uh, Zapotec Science that was looking at the work of peasant farmers in Southern Mexico in a remote mountain village uh, with real careful attention to how they operate using essentially a version of the scientific method, but using their own cultural assumptions um, along the way. Um, And then later on, you've uh, mentioned my uh, book Connected, which came out in 2020, that's a book about the same village, but it's the story of how they built their own community based cell phone network against all odds um, without any help from the government or multinational uh, telecom companies. Um, and so there's a very heavy element of science and technology studies uh, throughout that book. Um, and then, of course, most recently, the book that we're talking about here today, War Virtually, um, is all about the world of scientists, engineers, computer programmers, uh, data analysts. Um, and trying to get a better understanding of the cultural assumptions that they make as they uh, go about their work, and also a critical analysis of the dangers that these technologies might pose uh, for us over the long term.
1: Absolutely, thank you for that. Um, I wanted to just make a draw a point of comparison actually between your trajectory and my own. In as an undergraduate student, I studied chemistry for three years. Uh, somewhat like you, I ended up taking an intro- introduction to anthropology course where again, my, yeah, my whole perspective on the world was flip inside out and upside down. And so I ended up switching over to anthropology where I also completed a degree in three semesters. Um, anyway, the similarities I found uh, quite uh, amusing as I was reading your book and as you as you talk about that. And you, you write in the book that leaving engineering school was a relief. And so I'm wondering why this was the case for you.
0: The reason for me leaving engineering school was a relief, I, I believe I refer to it in my book as a mental breakout. Um, I felt that I was really hemmed in by the very narrow instrumental goals of engineering, engineering projects and the engineering um, education, um, which didn't leave a whole lot of room for critical uh, thinking or even ethical uh, considerations. So one of the examples I cite in the book is how we were never required uh, in the 1990s to take a course on engineering ethics. Um, and to the extent that it was even mentioned uh, in passing in our classes, it was more to do with the ethics of, uh, you know, abiding by the terms of a contract, um, rather than uh, issues to do with uh, the safety uh, of products or uh, product design that is socially responsible. So those factors never in- entered into the discussion or into the conversation. And I recognize that... A number of engineering schools have gotten much better at doing that sort of thing over the past generation but clearly in the 1990s at the major land grant university that i went to which was uh, really kind of producing a sort of cookie cutter education for the engineering students um, that was not really up for discussion and those were the kinds of questions that really fascinated me the most and so i found myself very unfulfilled uh in that way uh, as an engineering student um the other thing I should mention is that that at the time I didn't really critically think about, uh, but it was the fact that there was such a heavy, it, it was such a heavily gendered experience. It was, it's, it was, the classes, for example, in mechanical engineering were easily 90 to 95% males. Um, it was uh, a very undiverse, uh, a very homogenous kind of student uh, population and and faculty population for that matter as well and to enter into an engineering or into an anthropology class and to see that there was you know probably more uh, females than males in the class and a lot more diversity in terms of ethnicity and nationality um, to me just uh, made the university experience what I had hoped Uh, it would be from the beginning. And so uh, to me, that's been uh, also part of that escape, um, having left engineering. Now, I'll readily admit, I still have a very soft spot in my heart for engineering as a discipline, as a profession. Uh, In fact, um, two of my three siblings are engineers by training, and I I think it's a very good fit for them. Uh, But at the same time, I had to acknowledge early on that it just wasn't
1: for me. Sure, sure. And thank you for that. Um, let's get into the book itself a little bit more. You know, in the book, uh, book's appendix, anthropologist Laura Neider, uh, in reference to her research on legal institutions, posed this question some time ago. How can you study organizations that won't let you in the door? And so I'd like to pose the same question to you. How does one study big data and the Pentagon? What does so-called fieldwork or the everyday practice of the anthropologist look like when you're studying weapons laboratories and the Department of the Defense, for example?
0: I've been thinking about this question for a long time, for more than really for 15 years now. Um, after I did my doctoral research in um, in this farming village in southern Mexico, um, shortly after the dissertation came out as a book. Um, there was a really fraught political time uh, in the US and that centered largely around um, the post 9-11 wars that were initiated um, and led by the US in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it got me really thinking about the role of the social sciences in these new wars. Um, And I was very shocked to find out around 2006 and 2007, that there was a new program underway that came to be known as the Human Terrain System uh, program. And the main goal was to embed social scientists, anthropologists in particular, within combat units in Iraq and Afghanistan. And my direction, my research interest took a, a 180 degree turn. And I literally spent more than 10 years after that, looking at questions about militarization and the social sciences. And getting actively involved in critiquing uh, such programs. Many of these programs were, um, I think, a part of a kind of up-and-coming new form of counterinsurgency theory and practice that was underway, largely centered around General David Petraeus and his um, uh, military uh, officers and military allies. Um, and so it really got me thinking about how can I study uh, this form of militarized social science when it's not easy to get access? I can't just you know, walk into the Pentagon, for example, and, and start building rapport with people there. So what are the different tools that I have to be able to do that? And so here I went back to the classic work of Laura Nader, uh, her Up the Anthropologist article from 1969, in which she kind of lays out a pathway, uh, which is essentially about how to be creative ethnographically. And it's really uh, a piece that is focused on how do you do work in bureaucratic institutions that would rather make decisions and keep themselves sort of behind the scenes rather than out in the public. Um, And so I really followed her framework pretty closely. And uh, the first suggestion that I found really important was what she calls documentary analysis, which is essentially finding whatever documents and reports, um, uh, budget documents that might be publicly accessible or available. And nowadays with the internet uh, and the capacity to do online research, uh, it's, it's a, a kind of historic time uh, in that way. And so much of my work has relied on those kinds of official government sources Uh, including contracts, including what are called uh, RDT&E reports, which are uh, basically research, development, and technology reports that uh, the Department of Defense is required to submit to uh, various Pentagon committees or various congressional committees, I should say, um, and started exploring that whole uh, somewhat hidden world that's actually publicly accessible but not always easy to find Um, online. Um, Other sources that I used were um, the websites and annual reports of major defense contractors. Uh, I began finding uh, a number of nonprofit organizations, uh, probably the most important for this book, of which was uh, a group called Tech Inquiry, which specializes in doing research on tech industry contracts, that have been awarded by the Pentagon uh, to some of the biggest names in tech, as well as lots of smaller firms as well. Um, and out of this, and this is the second part of how, to answer your question, apart from documentary analysis, um, I've had the opportunity uh, as I've published more and more in the area of uh, militarization and social science, I've had people within um, the military reach out to me um wanting to tell their story oftentimes anonymously uh, but with information that they um that they really want to share and uh, want me to know about and write about and uh, in those cases that that can be tricky because you never know what kind of a motivation someone has for approaching you out of nowhere sometimes they'll use false names and that sort of thing um, and as I say in this appendix, part of the trick here, I think, if um, if, if you want to do this properly, is to, to treat it as you would any other fieldwork experience, which is put the person at ease, establish that level of trust, allow that person the level of confidentiality he or she wants, uh, even it's, if it's total um, uh, uh, anonymity. Uh, and try to build that relationship so that you have a better sense of what's actually going on and what you can learn from this person. And sometimes it's very clear that that person might have an axe to grind, or might, you know, might might be um, uh, might have some sort of personal vendetta against someone else. And so I try to use really good judgment um, when I when I encounter those sorts of situations. Um, finally, I've got to say I've cultivated a fairly small number, but I would say really important group of contacts who work. Uh, within various uh, elements of the military and intelligence community. And um, it's, a, it's a very different culture uh, with, with lots of different expectations, different kinds of linguistic norms. Um, I'll just give one example. Um, I've got one person who, uh, who's a trusted friend and anthropologist uh, who happens to be working uh, for the military. Um, and the person did me the favor of going through every page of the book and correcting every time I used the word um, clandestine inappropriately. So within the, the world of military intelligence agencies, terms that we might as anthropologists just sort of take for granted as ordinary terms like clandestine or secretive or secret um, uh, or what have you. Um, have very specific meanings within those institutions. And because I, I do hope that many people within the military uh, uh, industrial complex read this book, uh, and I know there are many critics of these new technologies within the military intelligence communities, um, I really wanted to give them a sense that I understand their culture and that I, you know, I respect the terminology that they use and, and trying to abide by that um, in in as faithful a way as possible. There's one other kind of funny example here, which is that um, it turns out that um, within the military, you don't necessarily have to capitalize the word soldier or pilot, but you should always capitalize the word marine, um, you know, regardless of whether you're talking about the Marine Corps or just an individual marine. Always capitalize that. And so that's a, a kind of a linguistic uh, detail that um, where I think it's, it's really important um, to, to be able to understand these institutions and, and get a sense of what's going f- from within and, and within the norms that, that they
1: follow. Interesting. Is the capitalization also the case for like Navy SEAL, for, for example? Uh, I wonder, because I've seen that capitalized.
0: Yes, definitely. Or Green Berets. So I suspect it has something to do with rank and and sort of relative importance of of, of one unit uh,
1: uh, over another. Okay, interesting. And that actually brings us to another aspect of the book that I think our listeners, once they get their hands on a copy, will notice pretty quickly, and I, I notice as well, which is the writing style. It uh, feels a little bit different. It, I would say it's not the same as uh, a what would otherwise be considered a heavily academic text, where typically you have it's, it's written for other academics, perhaps solely. Uh, I'm curious, was this choice of writing style intentional? What were you trying to do there?
0: Uh, I've very deliberately over the last, uh, I would say, six to seven years or so, uh, tried to abandon as much of the heavy academic prose as possible. Um, I came to a realization that I've established myself firmly enough uh, within the discipline uh, to not necessarily need to be... um, uh, steeped, have my writing steeped in, in heavy jargon. Um, I understand the importance of that and, and recognize the value of it. Um, however, for the kinds of topics that I'm writing about, I, for me, it's much more important um, to use language that's very accessible to people that don't have uh, PhDs in anthropology, uh, in fact, to people that are just, you know, uh, ordinary lay readers who are interested about a topic and want to learn about it, and so what I try to do is, um, you know, sneak in the anthropology in in a way that's palatable and understandable to people, um, so that they can recognize the value of what our discipline has to offer, um, yet at the same time reach a very large group of people, and I. Uh, I've had a wonderful experience working with my editor at University of California Press and having conversations with her about tips that I can use to to, um, to develop my writing in that way. Um, for me, what anthropology as a discipline has to offer the world is far too important to be masked or hidden behind uh, jargon that only a few dozen Anthropology PhDs are going to understand. Um, You know, we're we are in that really wonderful position of being able to bring to others within our own society lessons that we've learned from other parts of the world, from societies that are oftentimes solving problems in radically different ways than we are, and that have a, a tremendous creative capacity that we as a society can learn from. And, and to not share that with others to me seems seems, um, seems like an incredibly missed opportunity, uh, you know? And, and so for me, what I've tried to do, as I said, is to really spend lots of time thinking through literally every sentence and every verb that I'm using and every term that might be off-putting to someone because they just don't understand what it means. Uh, and, and it's been very rewarding. And to me, the interesting thing is that I find that this is what publishers are actually hungry for as well. I mean, because um, you know they want these books to get out to a wide audience too. But but you can't just do that with marketing. I mean, you have to have something that's going to be appealing to people. And um, I, I was able to get this book, um, what's called front listed in the UC Press catalog, which means that um, that it the, the publisher does recognize that there's a real potential for a a larger cross-disciplinary audience and hopefully lay audience as well. And along with that comes a lot of self-promotion. I mean, you do have to do your part as well. And um, my old way of thinking was, okay, the book's published. I'm done. I can move on to the next thing and with my last two books i realized actually once it's out in press <laughs> that's just the first part now you've got to follow through and outreach and and uh, in the case of war virtually you know i i uh, had an op-ed piece in the la times we're working on other opportunities as well uh, that give a chance to to um, provide a a a larger potential audience for the book too again i mean it's this sounds all i suppose very instrumental and non-anthropological but to me this is part of uh of what public anthropology uh, should be and that's the kind of work i think that's involved uh, if you if you want to do that
1: i have to say i absolutely agree um, that uh it's it's way more than necessary it's essential to rethink uh, that writing style and, uh, write in a, in a, in a way that offers what anthropological analysis might have to offer to other audiences. Absolutely. Getting into the first part of the book, I have to say, I quite liked your commentary on the p- parallels between data, the concept of data and the concept of a gift, which is the etymological definition of data. Maybe you can draw that out for us a bit. In considering big data and its militarization, I'm curious, how should we define so-called big data? And what's its connection with the concept of the gift?
0: Um, As I say in the first chapter of the book, data, the word literally means gift if um, if we analyze it historically. Um, its um, its roots are actually from a, an ancient Latin word "datum," which uh, means "that which is given." Um, the word entered the English language in um, in the mid sixteen hundreds um, as a philosophical term, actually, for things known or assumed to be facts. It had originally nothing to do with numbers, Um, but by the end of the 1800s, in the English language anyway, it did tend to, by that point, have a connotation, meaning uh, facts based on numbers uh, and statistics. Uh, Fast forward to the 19th century and the computer age, and data began to take on a different meaning uh, entirely, which was uh, basically numerical information that can be uh, stored and transmitted easily uh, by computer. Um, but I think it's important to remember that original connection to the concept of gift when contemplating data and big data today. And I have to give credit um to Jillian Tett and some of what she's written, she's an anthropologist who's also editor of the Financial Times newspaper, Um, but she, in one of her columns, pointed out this uh, etymological connection between data and and gift and gift-giving. And I think the the broad point here is that one way of thinking about data, personal data, for example, uh, personal information, which is often what is meant when we talk about big data, uh, in the context, for example, of, um, social media or Facebook or what have you, uh, what we're talking about are bits of information about our personal lives, including our relationship data about when we are born or ethnicity or religious or political preferences and so on. Um, and so on the one hand, you've got this, this information on the other hand, uh, we might think about this as gifts that we offer up to um, a company like Facebook or Twitter, whenever we use their, um, their services. Um, and the interesting connection here between gifts and reciprocity and, and that whole long anthropological tradition, stretching back to Mount uh, Mose and Melanowski and so on, um, is that I think in the minds of a lot of uh, users of the new digital uh apps and uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Um, there's a kind of reciprocal exchange going on whereby we give information to these companies with the other understanding that they're going to be providing us with these um, ostensibly free services. Um, the problem with that is that it's not a free exchange by any means. Um, of course, as I think your listeners will know, uh, data, our personal data is monetized all the time. Uh, by by pretty much all of the tech firms this is what their I mean their their business models are based on advertising and I think much of the um, much of the outrage that's been directed at companies like Facebook and Twitter and and others um, in recent years is a growing awareness on the part of us the givers of data um, that this is not a free exchange and not truly reciprocal, but instead um, the marketplace has somehow gotten involved uh, somehow. So just for me, I think that's been a useful um, uh, means of thinking about data in a, in a different way, in a more anthropological way, and also one that it helps us understand shifting ideas about big data itself um, in our society. Now, what's the connection here uh, to the military? What do I mean when I talk about, in, in the subtitle of the book, um, you know the militarization of big data. Well, what I mean here is that, um, it, and I should back up and say that when I talk about virtual warfare in the book, I'm really talking about um, four, if you want, new directions in 21st century warfare. Um, the first of these, uh, which we can get into in a bit, if you'd like, is um, autonomous and robotic weapon systems. Um, the second is cyber warfare and uh, cybersecurity security uh, and cyber defense. Uh, the third for me is a whole range of software programs that are collectively known as predictive modeling software. Um, predictive policing programs are one example of this. Uh, and then uh, the fourth element is uh, what I would refer to as um, high-tech psyops, high-tech psychological operations, which are really um, based on the militarization of big data, using uh, data that um, a company like Cambridge Analytica, for example, can harvest from Facebook and then use for very concerted uh, 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 political purposes uh, to convince individual users of Facebook who have been targeted because of their potential preferences to vote for this candidate or just to not vote at all or to take this position on Roe versus Wade or that position on gun control. Um, And so there's a chapter of the book and where I explore that more fully. So that I think is the key connection between the world of social media and the military use of big data. And and I think there's more and more of that happening with each passing month and not just in the United States, this is in, in many different countries.
1: Thank you. Yeah, for that. And you know, it's true. When before reading your book, thinking about the relationship between the personal data I give, for example, to uh, social media companies, I had never really thought about that going anywhere else besides sort of in their algorithms for advertising. And you make that that link very clear that our personal data and experience online isn't just going for the ads. There's there's connections where that feed into other programs, uh, even that are part of the De- Pentagon and Department of Defense, uh, which perhaps we can talk about a little bit later. Throughout the book, but especially starting in chapter three, you discuss the relationship exactly between US intelligence agencies, Silicon Valley tech companies and investment firms. And so I have another question for you, which is what is a dual use technology? And if you could define that term, that'd be great. What is the concept and what does it help us understand about a company like Google, for example, in what sense is a, the idea of a dual use technology, a misnomer. And in what sense might we consider a company like Google to have an origin myth?
0: The chapter of my book that you're referring to is, uh, the title is Pentagon West, and it's, it really ties together a lot of the themes throughout the book. One of the underlying currents that uh, I thought was really important to talk about was how we would do well to start thinking about Silicon Valley and the tech industry more generally, uh, not just as something separate from Um, the military-industrial complex, but as an integral part of the military-industrial complex. Um, And also a recognition that this isn't new either, that those connections have been around for a long time, but that we're going through a period of an an intensification of that relationship between big tech uh, and big defense. Now, um, to answer the question, answer your question about dual use um, technologies. This is um, a concept that has, that I I really am borrowing here from an anthropologist by the name of David Price, who, um, who's a friend and and someone who I've I've published a number of pieces with over the years. Um, but he has a very, um, I think useful idea of dual tech, uh, uses of scientific knowledge which I apply more to technologies uh, in this book. And the idea dual use means different things depending on the context. Um, but in general, I would say it, it has to do with the development of a technology, perhaps by, um, by a civilian company or a civilian inventor that can then uh, be adapted and used for the military, for military purposes. Um, So that would be an example of a a dual-use situation. Let me just give one example, uh, which I touch on briefly in the book. Um, If we think about um, virtual reality headsets, right? So you've got the Oculus and you've got various other models that are out there. Um, These as best as I know, uh, were not developed for military purposes. These were developed, uh, I believe, for gaming and then a number of other applications um, uh, in, in, the, in the civilian world. Uh, about five years ago, it turns out that Microsoft uh, struck a deal with the US Army to produce more than 100,000 uh, of its virtual reality headsets, which is called the, the HoloLens. Um, for use by infantry on the ground. And this is probably the largest contract uh, that Microsoft's had for its virtual reality headsets since they started marketing them. I I would be surprised if there was a larger single order uh, than this one. Um, So here's a great example, I think, of a dual-use technology that's developed for um, civilian purposes originally, but then gets um, used by the military. Um, We can look at things working in the other direction as well. If we think about the internet, uh, in its early stages was actually um, a Defense Department project in the late 1960s that was called the ARPANET, um, which then later on uh, became uh, the modern day internet and is now used primarily for civilian purposes. So this idea of dual use, uh, it's a two-way street. It's not just unidirectional. Um, but for me, it's a really important concept to keep in mind um, because it sensitizes us to the ease with which technologies or knowledge can can cross this border and how something that was never for military use can become militarized or weaponized uh, in, in some cases. So um, that, in essence, is what the, the concept is about. And I think it's also really useful for helping us understand this long-standing connection between the emergence of Silicon Valley as this incredibly important um, hub of, of innovation and of economic power and might um, and the military-industrial complex uh, as well. Now, uh, to get to the part of your question that has to do with um, with Google, uh, let me talk a little bit about about this uh, case. Um, I think that like many tech companies, it has its own kind of origin story, a sort of mythology about how the company was created and how it grew. Uh, but like any myth, like any origin story, um, it has to be taken with, <laughs> with a grain of salt. And, and it has, you know, one has to question, what's the real motivation of this myth and what function is it serving in the society at large? Um, the origin myth of Google goes something like this. Um, in the 1990s you had a couple of just really brilliant Stanford students um, that were able to cobble together a number of computers and um, and use the university's uh, basically internet connection to create this dynamic new search engine um, using um, you know this wonderful new algorithm that uh, that the creators uh, developed and The rest is history right that so the 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 myth is that you know by their own determination grit and just genius their their uh their immense innovative power uh these two renegade stanford students created one of the most valuable companies on the planet that serves us in so many ways from gmail to the search engine that we use on a daily basis um, and their company now is even a verb, right? We talk about Googling things, um, which I guess really means you've, you've made the big time. Um, the fact of the matter is in the part of the story that's often forgotten or never mentioned is the fact that the, the, um, the creators of the Google search engine and the founders of the company uh, were in fact financed. With taxpayer dollars that came from uh, the U.S. military and intelligence communities, who were interested in the possibility of a kind of worldwide archive of material that could be—it's like the biggest open-source treasure in in, in history—and I, I think the Pentagon understood this when they started uh, pumping money uh, into um, into this project in the early years, um, because I think they understood it could serve. Their intelligence gathering purposes uh, in very powerful ways. And so uh, I think that's an important part of the story to keep in mind. Now we can back up uh historically, and we can use, we can apply the same kind of um analysis to Silicon Valley as a whole. Um so again, whether we're talking about, you know, the the development of the original semiconductors in the late 1950s in Mountain View, California, uh, at the heart of Silicon Valley, or whether we're talking about you know um, uh, the experiments that led to the Apple IIe computer and so on out of someone's garage, um, what is often left out of the picture is that there was Pentagon funding from the very beginning, from the development of those first semiconductors back in the 50s, so that there's always been that connection there, although often in the background. Um, And that's something that I try to highlight. By no means am I the first person to expose this. I mean, there have been a number of historians and investigative journalists uh, that have gone into a lot more depth on this than I have. But as someone working at San Jose State University, which, you know, our logo at the university is powering Silicon Valley, you know, it's like we take great pride in being uh, at the heart of of this area. Uh, And yet, many of my colleagues are either unaware or have forgotten about this history or just don't acknowledge it. And it's, um, it's I think, to fully understand the region and to fully understand this ongoing uh, relationship and connection uh, between big tech and big defense, you have to understand that this is part of a longer-term historical trajectory that's only now taking, up, uh, uh, taking on uh, greater size and and more importance than ever. Uh, Just one last thought here uh, on this topic. What ultimately convinced me to do this book? i had had the idea in my mind for some time of writing a book on this, but it was a conversation with a former Google chief research scientist. He has a PhD in applied mathematics, brilliant guy, Um, but he actually left the company when he found out that Google executives had signed A multi-million dollar contract uh, to do artificial intelligence analysis on drone footage being uh, basically sent in from Afghanistan the number of photographs and images that these drones were taking on a daily basis far outstripped the Pentagon's capacity to analyze them so they wanted to farm it off and who better to farm it off to than Google the problem was Google didn't tell its employees Uh, and then a number of leaked emails went to the press and the so-called Project Maven fiasco um, hit the headlines for a brief period anyway. And so this chief scientist that I've gotten to know uh, better over the last couple of years quit the company in protest and created a research organization that um, is doing some fine work now on the connections between Silicon Valley um, and the Pentagon and um, intelligence community. But the point is, in one of our exchanges, he said something along these lines when I asked him, you know, what do you think the future holds for the connection between big tech and big defense? What he told me was, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's much worse than you imagine. (laughs) He said, in my mind, I don't think we're that far from the day that Amazon may just snap up a major defense contractor, like um, think Raytheon or Lockheed Martin. And what he told me was, just think of the financial resources that a company like Amazon has, which are so much greater than even the largest military firm. Um, and what would prevent them from doing that if they thought it was in their own uh, best interest to do so? And at that, it's at that point I realized I really need to write a book about this because this is a really troubling future for me, in which big tech and big defense, these two areas that have so much economic and cultural uh, and political power, um, not just in our society, but around the world, um, might might have that kind of a, of a might pose that kind of a threat for us as a society down the line.
1: Well, I'm I'm very glad that you did write the book because it helps me and our and our listeners organize some of these uh, trends we hear, perhaps in the news um, and on while on social media. Uh, of uh, the relationship between uh, Silicon Valley and say uh, the Pentagon and I wanted to note you also in the book dive pretty deep into past and current resistance of employees that work at these companies for example Google, Amazon and that it your approach I really appreciate your approach uh, and it helps us understand the complexity of what might be going on in some of these companies. Um, so perhaps later we can touch on that, but I wanted to pick up on one of the directions you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, which would be predictive analytics and predictive policing, for example, in the latter part of the book, you talk about the seductiveness of predictive analytics. And so. I'm wondering, seductive in what sense? And perhaps to answer this, you can describe to us what Aptima is, which is an example of a project uh, that you talk about in the book, and that is, that concerns predictive analytics. It's it's almost laughable when I was reading about it, and I think we're tempted to laugh off claims of creating software that can predict responses to military actions based off social theory, even anthropological theory, and identity trackers, for example. But why, in your mind, should we take these attempts to create such software seriously? Um.
0: Predictive modeling software. Um, let me first tr- try my best to describe what this is. Um, it, there are different kinds of um, programs, that some of which are, are uh, being created by major defense contractors like uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, and many of which are produced by relatively small companies like Aptima. Uh, which I spent some time talking about in the book. Um, they're not a household name the way Lockheed Martin or, or some of the other uh, large firms, defense firms might be, but they're quite specialized in that they um, their featured products are really these predictive modeling programs. What they do uh, in these programs is to use a combination of uh, different forms of data. So some of these might be... Um, uh, uh twitter feeds that are that are then analyzed and mined Uh, some of them might be uh, open source uh, other forms of open source intelligence that might be uh uh, that might be harvested from uh, media uh, companies around the world um they might be they might include uh, social media monitoring uh, elements as well that are able to comb through, uh, you know, Facebook uh, posts and things like that to try to detect trends that are happening in different parts of the world. Um, the idea here is that if you have enough data sources and you're able to integrate them and, and analyze them quickly enough, uh, and here's the seduction part, then you can potentially or hypothetically, I should say. Um, be able to predict where future conflicts are likely to occur, um, and so the um, I think that the, the attractive part of all of this is this kind of uh, sense that you could almost have a, a sort of computational crystal ball that would allow you to see several weeks or several months into the future uh, to determine um, the likelihood of uh, of an invasion of of this. country by another country, for example, or uh, an insurgency movement uh, occurring in um, in, in a certain South Asian country, for example. Um, And I I think that's very appealing to military um, uh, decision makers within the military and intelligence communities because of the uh, I suppose the efficiency with which it would allow them to do their intelligence work, and um, at least if uh, if the products actually worked as advertised, uh, it would allow them the kind of lead time they might need to uh, deploy troops if needed, or um, or to begin uh, uh, planning uh, for future scenarios uh, on the ground. The problem with this is that um, these programs in the in the current period don't seem to be working really well. So, for example, um, the Ukraine conflict—it's not as if any of these predictive modeling software uh, programs uh, predicted the the uh, the invasion of of Russian uh, troops um, in February, January, February. So, um, you know, it's in a way, I agree. I mean, and I had a hard time not sort of chuckling through some of these programs as as they're described and as they actually work. Um, and yet, I think the troubling part of this for me, and the thing that we should all be thinking about, is that is is that it's very likely that they are become they're going to become more sophisticated, and that they're going to be integrating a lot better data over time, particularly um, anthropological data that may be more qualitative in nature. And I think this is something. Uh, that as anthropologists anyway, we should be thinking through in terms of the ethics of it um, and and the ethics of doing this kind of of work. Um, Now, predictive policing is a little bit different. It it does fit under the same general category of um, predictive modeling software. But predictive policing, which I do spend a number of pages in the book talking about, um, to me is really interesting because it shows how easily these kinds of technologies can be used domestically um, here at home. Uh, And so there are many cities within the United States that have um, uh, bought these programs um, and are making use of them, even though they are rife with problems. Um, most, Most importantly is that, and I think this has been quite well documented at this point, there's a tendency for these programs to focus to, to focus their predictions for street crime for example uh in largely uh black and brown neighborhoods so you've got and as i say in the book it's it's data in uh, you know garbage in garbage out to use the um the phrase if you've got bad data going into these predictive modeling programs um that are biased um uh, and that that are already reporting a um uh, a disproportionate number of crimes in those neighborhoods, then the garbage out at the other end is going to be that prediction that that's where more crime is likely to happen. Even though the models they're using, um, are really dubious if, and have been criticized, uh, by many experts who understand, uh, you know, the, the algorithmic processes that are being used in these programs.
1: Right. Thank you for that. So of course we can't cover everything in the book which really is a very thoroughly researched book uh, that dives deep into the topic of virtual warfare. However, I wanted to ask, are there any arguments or points that you wanted to highlight or a that we missed in our discussion?
0: The, um, there are... Um, an- so many examples that I give in the book that I think could leave people feeling really powerless <laughs> as they read it, um, but that by no means is is my intention. Um, in fact, I would say the opposite is is my purpose to really um, wake people up to the really fast rate at which these technologies are being developed, and how there are movements underway to push back against uh, these technologies. So I'll just mention two examples one I've already alluded to um, that is the the what I call the resistance movement within the tech industry which doesn't get as much attention as it should um, you have had worker um, protest movements happening at some of the largest tech companies including Google Microsoft workers uh, protested when that uh, virtual reality headset contract was a, was uh, was granted to the company by the US military. Uh, You had Amazon workers protesting when it's recognition, facial recognition technology program was sold to um, immigration and customs enforcement officers. So you've got, um, I think the development now, it's really exciting to me uh, that you've got workers that are actually becoming, so uh, I would say, politicized um, as they see these decisions being made by corporate executives without consultation of, uh, of workers and, um, in other industries that might not be a big deal, but historically many tech firms have prided themselves on really being employee focused and sensitive to the needs, um, and opinions of employees. So that is very much a work in progress, I think, but I, for me, it gives me a lot of optimism about the potential for pushing back, uh, against these, these, uh, these forces. Um, the other, um, Example here, I would say, in terms of um, reason for optimism, is that I do spend we have hard we haven't talked about it much, but I've got uh, an early chapter in the book in which I look really critically at automated weapon systems, uh, drones in particular. Uh, and you do have, I think, more and more people, and this is a global movement actually, that are uh, really critical of the use of um, unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, not just by the U S but by other countries as well. And the frightening prospect of these things being given full autonomy so that they're essentially making the decision to kill uh, on their own with no input from humans. So along that vein, you've got groups like the um, what's called the, the campaign to stop killer robots, which is an alliance of uh, numerous NGOs around the world that includes the international committee against robots, um, uh, Robot arm arms uh, and Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch is a part of that coalition as well. So um, those movements are just picking up, I think, more and more support as time goes on, and as more and more countries uh, adopt these um, these forms of um, unmanned uh, weapon systems that can potentially be made into autonomous, fully autonomous weapon systems. Um, so. For these reasons, you know, I, I, I try to end the book in such a way that uh, by presenting alternatives for people that um, feel that they want to sort of join in pushing back against uh, the, the development and deployment of these new technologies.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think I've taken up enough of your time today, but before you go, can you tell us a bit about what you might be working on now?
0: Sure. Um, one of the things. Let me just back up and say that part of the reason I was attracted to anthropology is just the the the. I mean, shockingly broad number of things you can study within within even a, a subfield like cultural anthropology. Um, You know, you can do a project on religion or agriculture or science and technology. Uh, You can study health and and wellness. Uh, You can study sexual practices around the world. I mean, uh, you name it, uh, art, music. Um, To me, as someone that's always, I think, had a pretty eclectic range of interests, that was a huge draw, which um, anthropology allowed Um, And so we've talked uh, about a number of quite different research projects that I've undertaken over the past 25 years, um, you know, ranging from the fields of southern Mexico um, to Pentagon, you know, autonomous weapon systems. Um, And anthropology has room for all of that. Um, My next project, to get to your question, is... (laughs) I guess you might say totally unrelated to anything I've done before as an anthropologist. And it's actually, um, a manuscript that I'm working on, um, that is focusing on the working lives of mariachi musicians in the San Francisco Bay area. And, uh, one of my side jobs, my, one of my hustles about 20 years ago, um, was playing with a group that, uh, had a, we were the house band at, uh, at a nice seafood restaurant in um, in the Mission District of San Francisco, which at the time was largely, you know, uh, Latino and continues to be. Um, and um, there were quite a few adventures that we had. Uh, the The guys in the band, uh, there were two of us that were U.S. citizens. The rest were undocumented folks from um, from Western and Central Mexico. And uh, and boy, it was it gave an incredible window into the different ways of life across the bay area and um it so the book is um i'm again challenging myself with the writing style because i'm i'm reading everything from uh, hunter s thompson to anthony bourdain to try to get ideas uh, on the writing style um because i i'm really aiming for something that's quite novelistic in terms of its approach um but that also has that anthropological insight into, for example, what it's like to play as an undocumented mariachi musician uh, at a Silicon Valley firm Cinco de Mayo party uh, in the afternoon, and then the next day, uh, you know, play a garage uh, party at uh, on the east side of um, of Oakland for a hundred people, all of whom are undocumented, uh, so that it would. Be an ethnography in essence about the Bay Area, uh, in a way, but seen through the eyes of a working uh, mariachi group, and also introducing readers into the ordinary working lives uh, of these of these uh, of these people that were my friends for for a good number of years. So that's the idea. Um, I'm you know working on it this summer and just having a lot of fun with it, but at the same time trying to, i never took field notes on any of this. So I'm having to reconstruct a lot of this just um, from memory.
1: Okay, well, that's great to hear. I uh, will definitely be looking forward to uh, reading that work. Um, just as a final plug, I wanted to say that this book, or virtually uh, does really make connections that I had not come across yet, uh, which I really appreciated. I have to say that I, I learned quite a bit And I also appreciated how succinct you are in your writing. And I would highly encourage our listeners to get uh, their hands on a copy of the book if they can. Thank you very much, Roberto, for joining me today.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure and uh, just really appreciate the chance to, um, to share this book with your listeners.